1: Hi, Katie. Hi, Brian. Katie, did you know that we spend a quarter of our lives at work? Although I think in your case, it's probably more than that. I was going to say a quarter.
3: How about three quarters? Uh, well, you remember I told Kara Swisher work is like oxygen for me. <laughs> I don't want to asphyxiate you. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'm sure you'd
1: like to. <laughs> Every now and then. Anyway, today's guest, Adam Grant, is clearly right up your alley. He's an organizational psychologist. We talk about what that means. He's a very popular Wharton professor and an author, and he's one of the most productive people that you'll ever meet.
3: So productive, it's annoying at times. He was still in his 20s when he got tenure at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, and by the time he was 35, he had written three, yes, three best-selling books, and he's 36, by the way, now. Talk about making us all feel like terrible (laughs) underachievers, right, Brian?
1: Uh, For sure. Listeners, you might also, remember Adam Grant from our episode with Cheryl Sandberg, which is number 26, in case you want to hear it again. That's right. Adam and Cheryl co wrote the book Option B,
3: which is about facing adversity and building resilience. And I highly recommend it for anyone who's had to deal with setbacks. And for this conversation, we chat with Adam about all kinds of things the different work styles of employers and employees. Are you a giver, a taker, or a matcher, by the way? It'll be interesting for you to look at your own style, what makes a good workplace, which is the subject of his new podcast called Work Life. And also we asked Adam why he got into the field of organizational psychology and what the heck does that mean anyway?
4: Yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out. But (laughs) as far as I can tell, my job is to fix other people's jobs so i I take all the cool insights that we pick up in social science about how we can you know improve motivation and make better decisions and fight groupthink, and I try to design workplaces that suck a little bit less
3: well, when it comes to workplaces, at least uh, the ones that I've experienced and certainly read about, it seems like you must be a very busy guy
4: <laughs> yeah it's It's really convenient that there are so many bad leaders and managers out there because it it means I have a lot of work to do,
3: convenient but also shocking. Why are there so few good leaders? What are we doing wrong?
4: Well, I think the job has become less and less attractive. If you know, if you think about the the public scrutiny, if you think about, you know, most leaders are in a position where they might not get to stay for even a year, let alone a few years. I think we we've done a very poor job designing leadership roles where people say, "Look, I'm going to have a chance to to really take over and and try to fix an organization for the long term." And, you know, focus on vision and mission and innovation as opposed to just being accountable to a bunch of shareholders.
1: And based on your research, what are the characteristics that make a good leader?
4: Well, it's easier to make a list of the characteristics of a bad leader. <laughs> I
3: can, I can, Isn't that part of the problem, Adam?
4: <laughs> I think
1: we could all make yeah. that list, actually.
4: But, you know, I think you can flip those and say, look, you know, when I when I look at leaders, there, there are three basics that I always look for. One is that, you know, I, I would think about them as givers, not takers. Right? They're, they're here to, to make the group and the organization successful as opposed to enrich themselves. Two, they think about long-term decision-making as opposed to short-term pressures. Uh, and they champion visions that are going to you know, serve a broader interest over decades as opposed to quarters. And then three, they actually care about their people and put their people first as opposed to, you, know, you hear a lot of, well, I put my customers first. And the sad thing is that the way you treat your employees actually spills over to affect your customers. So it's pretty hard to run a customer-friendly organization uh, if you don't care about your own employees first and foremost.
1: Well, and to that point, and your first one about givers and not takers, you know, your first book makes the case very powerfully that helping others without expecting anything in return – is actually the best way to advance your career. Um, which Wait, cue
3: cuts... kumbaya, Adam.
1: <laughs> I mean, that really cuts against conventional wisdom that actually one of the most selfish things you can do is to, is to be generous. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, so it's, you know, it's not true for every person in every job. But on average, you know, when, when I've studied givers versus takers, so you know, are, are you constantly asking, what can you do for me or what can I do for you? The, the givers tend to struggle more in the short term. So they make the least productive engineers, the medical students with the lowest grades, and the salespeople with the lowest revenue. And it's not hard to figure out why that would be, right? Because you know, if, if you're constantly doing other people's jobs, you run out of time and energy to get your own work done. But in the long run, as quarters turn into years, what we see is that givers build more trust. They have stronger relationships and reputations, but they also learn more. Because the time you spend solving other people's problems actually puts you in a better position to solve the organization's problems. It gives you extra knowledge and skill and expertise. And so, you know, ultimately, the people who end up achieving the greatest success are the ones who are motivated to help other people succeed.
3: Isn't, though, aren't most people or effective leaders a combo platter, Adam? I know that you say they're givers, takers, and matchers. Before we get to my combo platter question, what is a matcher?
4: So most people don't want to be pure givers or pure takers. They're afraid of being too selfish and too generous. So they say, all right, I'm going to play it safe and I'll become a matcher, which is I'll do something for you if you do something for me. It's all about fairness, quid pro quo.
3: Is that good or bad? You make it sound bad.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's, it's a great way to play it safe. The problem is, though, that you become too transactional. And when you help people, it feels like you don't really care about them. You are just helping them to get something back. And then also you end up helping the wrong people, only the people who you think are strategic. But you both know better than I do, we cannot predict who's going to end up where. And so, if you only help the people that you think are going to serve your own interests, you're going to miss out on a lot of rewarding long term relationships.
3: So a matcher is really too Machiavellian in a way, or too calculating. I mean, I I was reading about this, and of course, I've read a lot about your work in the past, Adam, because this is not our first rodeo, as as we know in terms of doing an interview together. But I was thinking that I'm a taker, and it made me feel bad. What how do you think? You're a taker. Are you, I do. I actually taker? do. I do because. I don't First of know. all, no
4: taker ever says that. Really? Well, then maybe I'm just ever. a
3: highly self-critical perfectionistic weirdo cuz that that could be true too. But as I read about it, I thought I don't give enough and I I don't know, it seems to me you have to you can't always be a giver and there are times where you have to be a taker.
1: Right? I don't think that's – true. I mean, I think I'm like exhibit A of how you're not a taker, by the way, because you've been extraordinarily generous to me over the course of my career in many ways, and I'm not the only one. So I think to Adam's point, if you were really a taker, you, you wouldn't be self-aware, self-aware enough, introspective enough to even raise that criticism. Do you think you're too transactional? Or I'm do you not
3: transactional, but I do think I sometimes am demanding, and I do tend to blame other people. I tend to feel like other people's inadequacy or kind of laziness or whatever, that I get mad about that. But, you know, I think this is something I need
1: to discuss (laughs) with my therapist. I think this is interesting. I have so many thoughts right now. I I don't don't think those things are contradictory, though. I mean, I think you could be— I agree. You could set high expectations for your colleagues while at the same time being a generous boss. Totally agree. That's hard to balance, though, I think, Adam, isn't it?
4: Well, I don't know. Look, I'm not a therapist, but <laughs> here's what I will <laughs> tell you. But go right
3: ahead. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I'm <know? laughs> lying down. Please continue.
4: Perfect. So for, first thing is everything you said, Katie, I would say you're not a taker. You're a woman. Uh, you know, we we know that women tend to be much more self-critical than men and that, you know, both personally and societally tend to be held to much higher expectations on, you know, on how much giving they're supposed to do. So, you know, that that fits the pattern pretty clearly. But secondly. I think what you just said is that you hold people accountable for giving and you don't allow people to, you know, to get away with being takers. There's nothing wrong with being a giver who has very high standards and expectations. And in fact, that's what we see differentiates successful givers from failed givers is, you know, they have their own goals and they're ambitious and they say, look, I want to help other people, but I'm not going to do that at my own expense.
3: All right. Well, that'll be $500 and uh, the check is in the mail, Adam. So let me ask you sort of for our listeners for kind of how this can be applied. You give one example in your one of your books about putting two different signs up at hand-washing stations in a hospital. One says hand hygiene prevents you from catching diseases. Another reads, hand hygiene prevents patients from catching diseases. You measured the amount of soap used at each station, and doctors and nurses at the station where the sign referred to the patients use 45% more soap or hand sanitizer. Are you saying that sort of altruism is motivating?
4: Maybe. So what's, what's interesting about this experiment is the medical safety experts were convinced that the other sign would work, that, you know, ultimately, if you want to get doctors and nurses to wash their hands, you have to remind them that it'll prevent them from getting sick. And, you know, you could say, okay, you know, maybe, maybe then that didn't work because, you know, ultimately, these people are really altruistic. But our data tell a, a slightly more complicated story, which is that nobody believes that they're going to get sick. You know, we found doctors who said things like, well, I'm a doctor, so I'm protected. Like, that makes any sense. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. (laughs) But I think what, what they were getting at was, you know, either I had a superior immune system to begin with or I've developed one over years in a hospital. And, you know, I'm exposed all the time and I rarely get sick. And, you know, most of us tend to be overconfident about our own immunity. We don't want to believe that we're vulnerable. Whereas with patients, we know they're vulnerable by definition. And we also know it's part of our job to keep them healthy. And so it was a lot easier for you know, doctors and nurses, I should say doctors because it was mostly doctors who weren't washing enough, you know, who took that sign and said, all right, you know, this is my responsibility. Even if I don't think that I'm in need of you know, extra hand hygiene, I really wouldn't want to know that I got a patient sick. So I'll step up.
1: You did another study that I've, I've referenced many times over the last couple of days as, as I've sort of read up on you um, in a call center. Uh, where you worked. You were a 22-year-old graduate student, and you arranged for call center workers to meet with a scholarship student who benefited from their fundraising calls. And after meeting that student, the average call center employee raised 142% more money. And so, what are the conclusions that you draw from that study and the others you've done, and, and how can our listeners apply them in their own lives?
4: You know, I I went in expecting to do something much more dramatic. You know, I thought, okay, here are these callers who, you know, they raise all this money and they have no idea where it goes. And so I wanted to have, you know, a bunch of different scholarship students come in and tell their stories, have the, you know, the sports teams. This is at the University of Michigan. I thought the football and basketball players could come in and, you know, talk about how that revenue is so useful for Uh, you know, for helping their team succeed and have some faculty and staff talk about salary benefits. And the manager said, I'll give you five minutes, you can bring in one person. And I thought there's no way five minutes, you know, could, could influence anybody's motivation. But it really mattered. And after replicating it eight different times, what happens is when most people walk into a situation like fundraising, but any job, right, you don't always know who benefits from your products or services. And A huge part of what makes work meaningful, in fact, the biggest part of what makes work meaningful, is knowing who benefits from your job, and knowing that if your job didn't exist, other people would be worse off. And so you have a scholarship student come in and say, you know, here's how your work changed my life. I couldn't afford going to school, but because of the money you raised, I'm able to be here. That shows you that the time you spend at work really matters, that your work is, is valued and appreciated. And that's especially important if you work in a job where you're constantly interrupting people's dinners and harassing them for money, right? To, to be able to say, look, that, you know, that really unpleasant process serves a higher purpose. I think we all know that's motivating, but it turns out to be much more powerful than we realize.
3: That's interesting. I think it's helpful for people to kind of really look at the overarching reasons they do what they do. And sometimes it just means shifting your point of view about the worth of your job, right? I mean, you don't necessarily have to have a scholarship student come and talk to you. Sometimes it just means really thinking about why you do what you do and the potential impact it has, right, Adam?
4: You know, Katie, I wouldn't have believed that until uh, we ran some follow-up experiments. But we, we got that exact question which over and over again, which was, you know, what, what if I don't get to meet my scholarship student? You know, I don't know my clients or customers or users. Or, you know, what if I don't have those people, right? What if I have an internal job? And what we did was uh, we had employees keep journals just reflecting on who benefited from their jobs every day and how they made a difference that day. And we had them do it for four days, just a few minutes per day. And we found a significant increase in motivation after that. Uh, so just reflecting exactly as you've said on, you know, what, how does my job matter? Who benefits from it is enough to rejuvenate your motivation.
1: And you're definitely practicing what you preach here. And and this is featured in all of the articles about you. So just so our listeners get a sense, how many emails per week do you think you get from people asking for a favor? And how many of those emails do you respond to?
4: <laughs> oh, no. No. Uh, I'm afraid to count. i'd I'd have to guess
1: in the probably, hundreds
4: at least I was gonna say it's it's probably over a hundred a day. And uh, I respond to all of them, except for the occasional ones that make me think that the the person is is maybe not entirely mentally
1: stable, so over a hundred requests for a favor every day, and you respond to every single one.
4: I feel like that's my job. it's I mean, it's a huge part of why I became a professor. Uh, but also, I'm just one of those people who can't stand leaving an email unanswered, right? So somebody writes back and says, you're welcome. And I say, oh, it was no problem. And then I just, I can't let it go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And how is that not a massive distraction and, and also a massive hit to your productivity?
4: Well, there are days when it is. But I feel like it, you know, a lot of the emails I get are, you know, questions about, like my favorite emails are, have you ever seen a study on... And it makes me feel like all these hours I spend reading, you know, evidence about work in psychology might actually be useful to someone. Uh, and so, you know, it, it gives me a chance to sort of to translate a little bit of, of what I'm reading into language that people might find relevant to their everyday work. And, it, you know, it also just reminds me that the work I'm doing does have an impact on others, right? So I get to live the, that's my version of the, the scholarship student often uh, outside the classroom. And I think the other thing is that you know, in, in some cases, it's a, it's a great sort of break when I'm working on a hard problem or when I can't figure out sort of how to, how to tell a story or analyze the data set. Uh, I go over in my email and I say, all right, if I can help a few people in the next few minutes, then maybe I'll come back with some fresh insights or at least a little bit of extra energy to, you know, to pour back into the work that I'm trying to do.
3: Other than asking about studies, I mean, what other kinds of questions do you get? Because I know there's a constant stream of students coming in and out of your office on a regular basis. What are they asking you?
4: Often they're looking for advice. So sometimes it's, you know, how do I run this club that I'm in charge of or, you know, how do I do a better job, uh, you know, improving my interview skills or my job application cover letters? Uh, in a lot of cases, it's career advice, which I'm really reluctant to give. You know, I feel like it's it's hard to tell somebody what they should do with their life. And so often what I find myself doing is, you know, recommending a bunch of books and articles and then asking a bunch of questions that I hope will help them reflect on, you know, some of the, the directions they haven't considered before.
3: You know, what is the best way to really figure it out? Because I think career planning and placement offices at many of these colleges and universities are woefully inadequate. And with all due respect to the wonderful work that's being done at universities across the country, I do feel like this is an area which has much room for improvement.
4: Yeah, it's a look, it's a hard job, right? As someone who gets asked for career advice a lot, it's incredibly difficult to figure out. You know exactly where somebody should go and what steps they should take to plan their you know their twenty or thirty or forty years ahead. but I think one of the one of the biggest mistakes that I see students make, which I think I'd love to see career officers address more directly, is uh, is something that I, I raised with Cheryl Sandberg last time she was in town uh, she was uh, she was speaking to our students and you know I, I teed up a bunch of questions for her, and one of them was you know what what should my five year career plan look like or ten year career plan? And she said, you should never have a career plan that's five or 10 years ahead. She said, if I had had one of those, I never would have ended up in tech. Because when I graduated from college, Mark Zuckerberg was in
3: diapers. (laughs) That's a lovely thought.
4: It is, right? It it shows you how quickly the world changes. And I think that if you end up trying to chart too far ahead, then you lock yourself into, you know, a path that's either not going to exist or is going to radically change in the next few years. What I like to see students do is to say, look, my first job, my whole objective should be to maximize my own learning. So choose the job that you think is going to teach you the most or the group of people that you can learn the most from. I think that's the best way to begin planning your career, and it'll open lots of ideas up about where to go next.
3: At the same time, the rap on millennials is that they're so peripatetic, and they don't stay at one place for any length of time. They're flighty. They they're use, entitled. Yeah, they're entitled, and and so is this just a new way of working, jumping from place to place to place that us old geezers have got to get used to?
4: I I think so, but I wouldn't I wouldn't see it as a millennial problem. I think you know it's it's actually uh, <laughs> it's it's a change societally, right, as opposed to generationally. You know, th- whatever the statistic is that you've heard, you know, often I read that people are going to have eleven or twelve, you know, different careers, if you look at all the different jobs they'll take, I think that misses the larger point, which is we see that the, the employment contract has changed. It used to be the case that you could sign up with a company and know that you were going to stay there th- for 35 years and they would have your back. And with at-will employment and you know, with, with so much more mobility, but also so much more volatility, you can't trust anymore that the workplace you start your career has any shot of even being around when you finish your career, let alone will want to keep you around.
3: I remember giving graduation addresses as far back as the 90s, saying the era of working for one company, getting a gold watch and a pension at the end of many years is gone. I think it's important to point out that companies are not loyal to employees either. So it's not as if it's just a one-way street there on the disloyalty front.
4: Yeah, I I think that's so important. And, you know, at, at some level, I see that as employer-driven, right? So, you know, that it started when, when people stopped trusting that their employer would be loyal to them. And that activates a very basic matching response, right? Whether you're a giver, a taker, or a matcher by default to say, all right, you know, if this company is not going to take care of me, I don't owe them the same commitment back.
3: It's time to take a quick break. To hear from our sponsors, we'll be back with Adam Grant right after this.
2: And now let's get on with the show and back to Adam Grant,
1: shall we, Brian? (laughs) Yes, we shall, Kitty. So, Adam, I want to go back and give people a sense of how you got into all of this and also just how weird and compulsive you are. And I say this as a weird and compulsive (laughs) person myself. So you grew up... Thank (laughs) you. You're welcome. You grew (laughs) up in the suburbs of Detroit. Uh, The New York Times described your childhood in, I think, a very memorable way. He was an upbeat boy, though socially awkward and burdened by numerous food allergies and strong aversions to haircuts to blue jeans to chocolate he felt things deeply those aversions were matched by equally consuming passions which I, anyway i wish i had an aversion to chocolate <laughs> is that do you think that's still a fair way to describe you Oh,
4: I think some of it is fair. Look, Sue Dominus is, is such a gifted writer. And, you know, I, <laughs> I had an editor who said reading about yourself is a little bit like looking in a funhouse mirror. But, you know, I always thought of a funhouse mirror as distorting you. But when I read this, I, I said, all right, there, you know, there's some things that, that I wouldn't agree with the characterization of, of course. There are also some things that are way too glowing. And so, you know, I don't, I don't quite know where to come down on most of it. On that part, I hope I'm less socially awkward than I was then. You know, I, I was sort of the kid with like a curly afro and always wearing sweatpants, <laughs> and uh, you know, I I remember a whole Very bunch of my friends. Very Napoleon
3: Dynamite.
4: Yeah, uh, I was I was definitely more enthusiastic than Napoleon Dynamite, but uh, you know, I, I think uh, it took it took me a while to to figure out. Uh, That being liked was sometimes more important than being right.
3: And what drove you to really focus on this area of study? Because clearly, you're exceptional at it, Adam. I think you've been voted the best teacher at Wharton six years in a row. Your students adore you. You're popular in the lecture Circuit, you have yeah. My a highly- sister couldn't
1: get into your class, Adam. I asked her about you because <laughs> oh, she was no. she got an MBA at Wharton, and she said, "Oh, his class is it, it was almost like that Yogi Berra line that nobody goes to that restaurant anymore because it's too crowded." She said <laughs> <laughs> nobody goes to his lectures because they're too full. Uh,
3: so so, what was it that drew you to this? Because I think that's probably illustrative of following your bliss, as they say.
4: Yeah, I think. You know, I, I actually, I was one of those college students who had no idea what I wanted to do. And that actually was was one of my biggest frustrations growing up. I hated getting the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I really didn't know. I knew that there were lots of things that I enjoyed doing, but I couldn't think of one thing that I wanted to be. And so, you know, I, I went through the first half of college just, you know, kind of fascinated by a psychology and how there was so much knowledge collecting dust in journals that wasn't being shared with people that might actually make their lives better in some way. And so I wanted to do something with that, but it's not like there's a natural career track for that unless you want to be a therapist, which I knew I didn't. I I wanted to sort of figure out how we could improve everyday choices. And um, I went and took an an organizational psychology class, which was offered at 8.30 a.m. You know, everyone would sort of walk in like zombies. And we forgot how tired we were during the class. There was this incredible professor, Richard Hackman, who also didn't know what he wanted to do with his career. So he took all the jobs that he thought were interesting, and he made a career out of studying those. Uh, So, you know, first he he had thought about being a basketball player because he was tall, and he studied what made a basketball team win or lose. And then he would wanted to be in music. Uh, He'd thought about maybe kind of symphony work. So he went and studied orchestra effectiveness. He'd thought about being a pilot, so he studied uh, airline cockpit crews. And I saw that and thought, what a cool way to live vicariously through all these interesting jobs and try to figure out how to make work better in the process. And I was hooked.
3: Aren't those high-class problems? I was thinking about that. You know, so many people can't afford to, to explore these different areas and really figure out their place in the world. What would you say to students who, or people in general, who don't
4: have that luxury? Well, I don't think the problems are high-class, right? So maybe the problem of not knowing what you want to do uh, is and feeling like you have right, lots of uh, so options. that's a high but, class
3: solution. You know, they, I should they, say.
4: Yes, <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. What you know, what I would say to to people in any position is that you know, so often we end up in a job where the job description wasn't written for us; it was written for you know somebody else who had the job before us, or it was written for you know some <laughs> generic idea of here's you know here's what we think a person is motivated by. And here's what we think our you know our people's strengths will be, uh, you should do that, because this is what we need you to do. And when you study how people do their jobs, very few people actually accept their job descriptions exactly as they were written. They tinker with them. They become sort of like mini architects of their own jobs. When we study this, I have colleagues who call it job crafting. It's the idea that you can redesign your own work role to bring in some of your interests and your values and and your skills that might be un, unused. And a lot of people miss out on that opportunity because they just take their job description as a given. And, you know, I think the first piece of advice would be to say, yeah, take a step back and figure out what are the strengths you have? What are the skills you want to master? What are the passions you have that you don't get to bring to work every day? And try to figure out how those could be relevant to your team's mission or your organization's goals. And then have a conversation with your boss about whether there's a way to use those skills or develop them.
1: I was thinking a little bit about your... 100 emails plus a day that you answer. Um, how many hours a day do you work to get all the stuff done that you do? Well, it's different,
4: it's different now that, it, that my wife and I have kids. I think before that, I probably averaged 15-hour work days uh, for quite a few years. Now, I basically try to do all my work when our kids are at school or asleep. So <laughs> if, you, if you do the
1: math, I don't know, I probably work 70-hour uh, a week roughly now. And and doesn't that lifestyle sort of cut against the kind of Ariana Huffington self care ethos that's so in vogue now about digital detoxing and taking no. lots of time off and getting eight hours of sleep every night, et cetera, et cetera?
4: Absolutely not. So I've uh, I've had I've had some fun debates with Ariana about this, and I think uh, the data support at least for for people like me, the way that I've I've chosen to live my life, which is. I have a colleague, Nancy Rothbard, who studied workaholics, and she found that there are two kinds of workaholics. Uh, they're they're basically stressed out workaholics, where they're constantly feeling, you know, these looming deadlines hanging over them, and they feel obligated to work, and it's bad for them, you know, both their physical health and their mental health. But there's another group of people that that are called engaged workaholics, who are just intrinsically motivated by their work. They might see it as a calling. Uh, they might feel like it's deeply meaningful. They might just really, really enjoy it. And I'm one of those people. And if you look at the data, working more doesn't make them less healthy. It actually <laughs> seems to contribute to their health, or at minimum, it doesn't—you know—it doesn't cost them anything. Sound familiar?
3: I feel like I'm a cross between the stressed out, looming deadline, crazy, scared to sit back and not—you know—be idle, and somebody who's highly engaged in. Her
4: work. I wonder if part of that is, is just a function of, of being in the news and journalism world, that it's hard to be a purely engaged workaholic because so much of your job is dictated by, by external forces.
3: Possibly. Possibly. We need to spend some more time together. <laughs> Obviously, I have a lot of problems. But I wanted to ask you about another book you wrote called Originals. You talk about nonconformists and, and what are the lessons we can learn from them?
4: yeah, so you know I, <laughs> I've, not, I've not admitted this uh, publicly very often, but i was I was actually digging a while back into the founding of Harvard's first online social network, which, of course, you know, everyone feels like they know the story of, but there's a backstory that most people don't know, which is, this is almost two decades ago now. There was a small group of, of college seniors who got into Harvard, and a couple of them were were worried that they wouldn't have any friends if they went. And so they started searching, at the time it was America Online, <laughs> they searched AOL profiles to see if they could find, you know, future members of their class and get to know them so that they would arrive at college with some friends. And they they found a few people, and they started a little email list. And every week, they'd find a few more people and expand the list. By April, they had over 100 entering freshmen on the list. And when they arrived at, at school in September, they had connected more than an eighth of the freshman class online. And then those, uh, those freshmen shut down their online social network because they said, we already know each other face-to-face. Like, why do we need an online connection? And they've lived with deep regret ever since because <laughs> Mark bet. Zuckerberg started Facebook five years later in a dorm right down the street. And um, I guess I, I know something about that regret because I was one of the co-founders of that first online social network. Wow.
1: Dun-dun-dun. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> Think what <laughs> so, you'd be
3: doing today, Adam. Oh, don't worry. Just you know a couple what?
4: billion
1: I, dollar mistake.
4: It was, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was a terrible decision. But the funny thing is, it never occurred to any of us, you know, that anyone would get any use out of it. You know, once once you were all on campus together, you know, I look, I'm not a, I'm not a computer scientist. I don't know how to code. I never would have had Mark's vision for Facebook or you know Cheryl's business acumen and leadership skills, but. I did walk away from that experience thinking that so many of us are in positions where we have ideas, you know, for things that could make the world around us a little bit better. You know, anytime you get frustrated, you know, in your job or whether, you know, you're volunteering in any part of your life and say, you know, that, that doesn't make sense or I wish this was different, that's a moment to do something original. And a lot of times we, we just don't bother because either we're afraid or we just think it's futile, and we don't see the potential in our ideas that we should. So that, to me, was a reason why we all need to pursue our ideas with a little bit more enthusiasm than we do.
3: But do nonconformists rule the day, basically? Is that the thesis of your book, Originals?
4: Yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of looked up to the, the people who I thought of as the nonconformists, you know, the original thinkers who were willing to to go against the grain and and challenge the status quo and, you know, take big risks. And they are the people who drive a lot of the creativity and change in the world. You know, if, if you think about whether it's, you know, tech entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of people will say Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. Or, you know, I, th- I think social change, too. If you think about Gandhi or Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King Jr. or Abraham Lincoln, right? These were all people who were willing to stand up for their ideas against a majority that that didn't really see it. And I think that, you know, they, they do sort of run the world, But a lot of people who operate this way get shot down because they don't know how to champion their ideas effectively. And so, you know, I guess I wrote originals to say, look, we all have creative ideas. Creativity is not the problem for most of us. Where we struggle is what we do after we have an idea. How do we know if it's any good? How do we speak up so that other people really hear us and take us seriously? How do you execute it, right? Exactly. Exactly. So I, I really wanted to write the sequel to Creativity.
1: You know, I, I'm a relatively new parent, and I know you have three Congratulations. kids. And, <laughs> thanks. No doubt you're parenting Adam in a totally evidence-based, you know, data-driven, brilliant way. But um, <laughs> Whoa, Hold on a second. I do not want to be one of those psychologists who screws up our kids. <laughs> I know a few of them, actually. But anyway, what, what are some things I can do, um, because obviously I'm already screwing up my kid at 17 <laughs> months old, uh, to encourage her to you know, not just achieve great things, but also to be a good and happy person?
4: Well, I think when it comes to building resilience in kids, the, the first thing I would say is that I think of of everything that that I've learned and that, that we read about and studied, the, the thing that kids often need most is to feel that they matter. And mattering is this this idea that sociologists study, which says, you know, you feel that you matter when you know that other people notice you, care about you, and rely on you. And I think most parents are pretty good at the first two, right? Paying attention to our kids, as long as we're not distracted by digital devices, check. You know, caring about our kids. We we go out of our way to show our kids that we love them and, and tell them regularly, good on that front too. But then to know that you matter, you also have to feel that other people rely on you. And this is where I think we screw up. We don't count on our kids enough. And we put them in a position where we solve problems for them, especially if we're helicopter parents. And so, you know one of the ways that you can show your kids that they matter and and help to build their resilience is to ask them for advice. I've actually found myself doing this with uh, with our with our daughters. Uh, when I was preparing for a speech uh, two years ago, i was uh, I was asked to give a TED talk, and I was terrified. I'd gotten more and more comfortable doing public speaking, but this is a whole different kind of stage. and I thought this is a this is a perfect moment to you know to show our kids that they matter. And so I went to our oldest daughter and I said, you know, I'm nervous about this speech. What advice would you give me? And she gave me a few tips. She said, you know, you should uh, you should practice it a bunch of times. And, uh, you know, maybe you should also, uh, you know, you should think happy thoughts right before you give your talk. So uh, lo- long story short, uh, you know, a couple weeks later, she was in a school play and she was nervous. And instead of telling her what to do, I got to repeat her own advice back to her and say, you know, what what advice did you give me? And then she was able to tackle the problem on her own. So that advice giving, you know, sort of experience for her, it, it signaled to her a few things. One, I trust her to handle her own problems. Two, she has, you know, some of her own ideas instead of relying on mine. And that's a source of strength. And three, I also get to hear her suggestions and maybe edit them a little bit so that I can teach her some good strategies.
3: That's really good advice. I've read so much parenting advice in, yeah, my, never read that. in my day. And I've never read that or heard anybody talk about helping kids understand that they matter. I've certainly read so many books and articles about overparenting and helicopter parenting and raising sort of these not only entitled everybody wins a trophy kids, but I want to ask you about your podcast called Work Life. First of all, are you enjoying it, Adam?
4: Oh, I'm having a blast. Thank you for asking. This is this is so much easier than writing.
0: Uh, but it's also just <laughs> Well,
3: it's also it's also fun just to talk to interesting people I'm assuming and I know you're focusing on businesses that are highly functional but often unconventional. So I'm curious, can you give us a few examples of the businesses that you've explored on your podcast?
4: Yeah, so the idea for for work life was I would pick organizations that go to the extreme on something that I wish everyone got a chance to experience. So, I wanted to do an episode on creativity. And I got to go into the Daily Show writer's room and figure out how they uh, they go from basically a blank slate at 9 a.m. to, you know, a hilarious show by evening, which was a, just one of the coolest experiences I've ever had.
3: I bet. I'm
4: jealous. <laughs> Me too, actually. I, I was half tempted to quit my job and, and try to get one there, but they were not hiring. So... And I don't think they would take (laughs) me anyway.
1: Oh, yeah, dorky white Jewish guys are not who they hire ever. So, yeah, you
3: (laughs) probably— I was going to ask you, was it very male-dominated? Because I think comedy is sort of one of those fields where women do not get uh, their just due, in my personal opinion. What was it like there? That was
4: what I expected, and they have done a phenomenal job on diversity. Uh, So they have a a really strong male-female balance. They also have uh, many, many racial minority groups covered, as well as uh, people from outside the U.S. working as writers and producers and on-air talent. It's the most diverse writer's room I've ever seen, which is a huge priority for the show. It started in the Jon Stewart days. Trevor Noah has has continued it uh, and expanded it. And you know, dating back to about 2008, 2009, uh, they, they introduced a, a blind review system, kind of like the blind auditions that orchestras did. Where they had, um, you know, people right. play from behind a curtain, so you couldn't see if it was a man or a woman, and all of a sudden, people realized, "Whoa, women are really good. We've been overlooking them."
3: Right, and orc, the the the. We actually went to the Boston Symphony and recorded bl- a blind audition. And it changed awesome. the, uh, the complement of male, female uh, orchestra me- members uh, uh, dramatically. I think they're now 30 percent of national symphonies are women. And I always said, well, you have to wear sneakers because no one can hear your high heels when you're walking <laughs> across the stage or you have to put a carpet on there. But, um, you know, that's what I'm talking about when it comes to real policies that remove these biases.
4: Yeah, I think, I think that's so critical. And, you know, there are often wrinkles in doing that. So, you know, you think, okay, we, we do the blind submission. That's going to fix late-night writers' rooms. But you, you actually watched in the past few years a bunch of other writers' rooms followed The Daily Show's lead. They had blind submissions. And they still ended up with mostly white men because, you know, the, the, the people in the room were a bunch of white men and that was their taste. And so, you know, the, you need to make sure that your evaluators are as diverse as your applicants, which I think is often a missing part of the process. And that's, I think, part of where The Daily Show has nailed it.
3: That's so interesting. I I love that. Before we go, there's some unconventional Adam Grant advice. So we're going to do a quick lightning round. And you can explain what the heck you mean by some of these things, because they're very counterintuitive, as they
4: say. So one,
3: don't be your authentic self,
4: huh? (laughs) In one sentence or less. Uh, I think that too many people use authenticity as an excuse for saying things that are hurtful or inappropriate. And instead of asking what's inside and how do I bring that to the outside world, we should go outside in and be sincere and say, who's the person I claim to be? And then how do I make sure I follow up and actually live that? By the way, the most overused word in the English language right now, in
3: my opinion, is authentic. But you're saying that that's not necessarily a positive thing.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, when when you look at the, if you look at authenticity at work, the studies show that the more you value authenticity, the lower your performance evaluations and the lower your likelihood of getting promoted, because you, you end up sort of not concerned enough about what other people think. And I'm not saying anyone should be inauthentic. What I am saying is you need to find a balance between what's authentic and what's effective.
1: Okay, another piece of Adam Grant advice. It's okay for kids to fight, by which you mean argue, not like beat each other up.
4: Oh, I, I was so fascinated by the data on this. If you study highly creative adults, it turns out that they tend to be raised in families growing up where there were more arguments. Uh, you know, not fistfights, but real heated debates. And th- I think the reason for that is that it teaches kids not to just listen to whatever one adult or two adults says, right? If if as if as parents, you always present a united front, then kids just learn to follow authority figures, Whereas if you watch your parents argue, you have to think for yourself. Now, a lot of parents are afraid of arguing in front of their kids. Uh, You don't want to, you know, terrify them that you're going to get divorced or anything. But what you want to do is you want to model a healthy disagreement, because that teaches them how to do that themselves. And the data show that if you look at how well-adjusted kids are, it has nothing to do with how often their parents argue. It's about how respectfully their parents argue.
3: And it's really also debate, right, to have a difference of opinion. I, spe- I think that's yeah. especially relevant in this day and age where people are getting information that affirms their point of view rather than uh, learning how to be critical thinkers and express how they feel in conflict with, a, with an opposing point of view. It's a huge problem. Corporate culture is more important to your happiness than salary, title, or position. I would agree with that.
4: Yeah, above, obviously, you, you need enough of a salary to, to make ends meet and, you know, to to be able to support your family or your lifestyle outside work. But once once you clear that bar, I think a lot of people underestimate how much culture matters. If you look at the evidence on this, one thing you can do is you can say, look, uh, you're trying to diagnose the culture of an organization. And the easiest question to ask people is not what's your culture like or what are your values, because you get a bunch of of platitudes. Instead, what you want to do is you want to ask a Passover question, which is, can you tell me the story of something that happened in your organization that would not happen elsewhere? And then you ask a bunch of people that question, and you start to hear the really core values of the, the culture come out in the stories. Brainstorming meetings are a waste of time. Always? Not always, but on average, if you were going to bring eight people together in a room to brainstorm together, you would get more ideas and better ideas if you put them in separate rooms to brainstorm alone.
3: Interesting. And just to write down their ideas, then get together and compare notes?
4: Yeah, because when when you let people think independently, you get less groupthink. You don't have people censoring themselves, you know, who are afraid of looking stupid, and you don't have people talking over each other. So you get more ideas. And people are more likely to share their boldest ideas.
3: And finally, one that really made me happy, procrastination can be good because I am a master procrastinator.
4: Oh, well, <laughs> I guess I'll tell you about that one later. <laughs> oh, you've <laughs>
1: used that one sh-
3: before. No. But
4: a <laughs> I've, been, I've been waiting for an opportunity. No, I, yeah, I, I was very pleasantly surprised to discover that you know, procrastination is a spectrum. There are people who do it chronically, but there are also people like me who are pre where, you know, I'm constantly finishing things early. And oh, wow. there's a sweet spot where people who, who procrastinate sometimes seem to be more creative because they incubate more and they don't run ahead with their their first idea. They actually have time to develop their best idea. Excellent.
3: Well, that was a great lightning round. And for our final question, Brian Goldsmith.
1: Well, I couldn't do a podcast and not talk about Donald Trump. So before we wrap, what have you learned about the organizational psychology and culture of the Trump White House?
4: Oh, wow. Well, look, to me, the single biggest problem in in the White House right now, uh, you know, and I think there, there are no shortage of, of issues that are getting lots of attention, but I think the single biggest problem is that uh, the Trump administration is repeating the mistakes of many past presidents which is, if you look at the one of the big differences between presidents who made decisions that are regarded by historians and political scientists as great versus those who, who had more stumbles, uh, one of the biggest factors that distinguishes them is having an honest broker, someone in the White House who sits above all the heads of the different agencies and gives, you know, really candid feedback to the president and the president listens to that. You that doesn't that's not the only structure, of course, but... I think it it illustrates that you know we we have a, a pretty clear situation of of yes men where we have you know we have a president who, like many powerful people, is listening to the people who agree with him and dismissing his critics. Uh, and we know that's that's horrendous for decision processes. And so I would love to say that you know, if I could do one thing differently in the White House as it currently runs, I would say that we're going to find a bunch of people who genuinely hold different opinions and we're going to we're going to listen to their challenges as opposed to dismissing them shutting them down or firing them
3: Excellent. All right. Well, that's good advice. I'm sure it won't will not be heated, but it's interesting <laughs> <laughs> to hear your perspective, Adam Grant. Adam, so great to talk to you. We want to mention again, your new podcast is called Work Life. Everyone should give it a listen because Adam, at 36, is wise beyond his years. Um, annoyingly so, I must say at, <laughs> at certain <laughs> points. But um, love talking to you, Adam. Thank you, thank you for thank calling you me, so annoying, much, that, No, no, no. I'm I'm teasing.
4: This is a trick as always, thank you so much for having me.
3: Well, that's the end of our show. Brian, I always feel so much smarter and calmer after talking to Adam Grant, even though he makes me feel like I just do nothing every day.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a great combination of feeling like a terrible person, but also like, maybe my life's going to get a little better. <laughs>
3: thanks to our pod squad behind the scenes. That's our producer, Gianna Palmer, our audio engineer, Jared O'Connell, and our assistant producer, Nora Ritchie. Also, a big thank you to my assistant, Beth Damas for keeping my life in order. Poor Beth. Thank you, and Beth. And of <laughs> course, thanks to Emily Beena, Katie Kirk Media, and Allison Bresnick, who does such a great job on our social media front.
1: Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. You can find Katie all over the social medias under (laughs) – actually, media is the plural, right? Yes. Uh, Under Katie Couric. Meanwhile, I send a lot of stuff out into the void on Twitter, which my mother reads, at I read it, too. I read
3: it, too. Brian and I are the show's executive producers. Don't forget to leave us a message with your thoughts and feedback on the podcast. Honestly, we we can take
1: constructive criticism as long as it's constructive, people. That's right. I'm standing by 24-7 at 929-224-4637. You can also email us at comments at curricpodcast.com. Or leave the show or review on Apple Podcasts. We love hearing from you. And the Apple stuff, by the way, is how more people hear about the show. So that's really important. And we would appreciate it.
3: Lately, a lot of people have been telling me that they fall asleep listening to my podcast. I don't don't know know whether whether to be flattered or (laughs) insulted. But they said my voice is is soothing. So it makes me think I should maybe release an album of lullabies. I don't know. Or poetry.
1: And we know how much you love to sing. (laughs) Actually, Katie, can you give us a few notes from your favorite lullaby? You I didn't sing, sing anything episode. in this no. episode. Twinkle, twinkle, maybe. No, no. I'm kind of embarrassed at performance Shaka?
3: anxiety right now. Brian has to be kind of more spontaneous and natural. We can play it for Eliza,
1: whatever, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> All right, we'll do a, okay. a private recording session,
3: <laughs> yeah, for her later. <laughs> How about 99 bottles of beer on the wall? Oh, That's perfect. a perfect one. Perfect. Anyway, as always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Yay.
2: if you dare. MoPlay. play